you can sit in church all your life and you can have a sincere heart that longs to worship, but if you aren't willing to pursue a knowledge of God, then you will never truly worship Him. Your worship will only soar as high as your knowledge of God and His Word goes deep. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in his current series titled The Heart of Worship. Tom is teaching how the scripture defines true, authentic worship. Is it possible to have a heart that sincerely longs to worship, but not have an accurate knowledge of God? Are you going through the motions while your heart might be distant towards God? Oh, you might be singing, praying, and reading His Word faithfully each Sunday in church. But as you'll be reminded today, those things do not necessarily indicate that you're truly worshiping God. So what is the criteria? What is an indication that you really are truly worshiping God? Let's join Tom to find out on The Word Unleashed. We live, of course, in an internet age. Most of you are familiar with the internet search engine, Google. Maybe you've merely read about it with some curiosity in the newspaper. Or perhaps for you, Google has become a sort of constant companion, both at work and at home, and now many of you even on your cell phones. It is an extremely useful tool. Regardless of what end of the spectrum you find yourself on, we can all acknowledge that Google has become a force in our world. But there is a dark side to Google that you may have never considered. The founders of this corporation called Google took their name from a mathematical term, the word Google, pronounced the same but spelled differently. It's spelled G-O-O-G-O-L. Google is simply the number one followed by 100 zeros. Now, most of us don't use that number in our daily lives. We don't encounter things that need that sort of uh, number to, to characterize them or to capture them. But that's how much information that the founders of Google plan to catalog and organize. We need to ask the question, does Google, or for that matter, the Internet as a whole, really increase our knowledge? Or does it merely make Googles of information immediately accessible to us? Do you understand there's a huge difference between the two? James E. White notes, for example, that you can Google God and come up with millions of hits. But is that really helpful? In the end, how do we determine what's right and what's wrong? White goes on to say, that in reality we're left with, quote, endless volleys of nonsense, folly, and rumor masquerading as knowledge, wisdom, and even truth. And this information is not simply at our demand, White writes, but under our control. We live in a world where we can see only what we choose to see, hear only what we choose to hear, and read only what we choose to read. Through technology, we have the ability to filter out everything but what we wish to be exposed to, creating what one University of Chicago professor called 
the daily me, a self-created world in which we see only the sports highlights that concern our favorite team, read only the issues that address our interests, and engage only in the op-ed pieces with which we agree. The highly lauded personalization of information protects us from exposure to anything that might challenge our thinking or make us uncomfortable. Listen to how White finishes. Unchecked, we begin to follow the sound of nothing more than the echo of our own voice. That is, in a very real sense, the world in which we live. So what happens when people who live in that kind of culture begin to think about worship? Well, they want to personalize it, just as they do everything else. They want to choose mechanisms for worship and a church that has all the elements that they like, that make them comfortable, often with little thought of what really matters to God. Does God care how we worship? Or can we simply take a kind of daily me approach to worship where we design into our worship the elements we like and leave out those we find distasteful? We've learned that God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship him. So the question is then, how exactly has God prescribed that he be worshiped? We'll examine the specific elements or activities of worship that God has prescribed. But first, we need to understand the heart and soul of worship. And so we're looking at our Lord's teaching in John chapter 4 and at his conversation with the woman at Jacob's well. Let me invite you to turn to John 4. Let me remind you that these are the words of the Son of God as he interacts with a woman of that day, a Samaritan. John chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 20. The woman responded to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now in this paragraph, Jesus teaches us how to worship God. He opens up for us the heart of worship. In fact, we could describe it this way. Jesus here identifies for us four inviolable laws of true worship. As we already learned, you and I were designed to worship God. And so we need to know how. And Jesus says, here is how. The first law, and the one we discovered last week, is that true worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. We saw that in verses 20 and 21. True worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. 
merely showing up at the right place and performing the right activities does not constitute true worship. Listen, God is not satisfied with an outward shell of worship. It's not enough to God that you showed up here this morning. God is unimpressed that I am here and that you are here. Performing the right activities, which we are doing this morning, these are the activities God prescribed for his worship, that we're to sing to him, we're to pray to him, we are to read his word together, we're to give, we're to listen to the word of God taught. All of those things have been designed by God as part of worship. Those are the right activities. But the fact that you are participating in the right activities does not mean that you are truly worshiping God. We learned that true worship begins with a decision in the heart. It begins with a decision in your heart to say, I am here this morning to ascribe to my creator and to my redeemer the glory that he deserves, the praise that he deserves. It begins consciously from within the heart, and true worship always starts there. It doesn't start by showing up. It doesn't start by opening your mouth to sing. It starts with a decision in the heart. True worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. A second inviolable law of worship, and the one that I want us to look at today, is found in verse 22, and it's this. True worship is not merely emotional, but must result from knowledge. Let me say that again. True worship is not merely emotional. The key word there is merely. It does involve emotion. That's crucial that our entire being be engaged in worship. So emotion is involved, but it is not merely emotional. Instead, true worship must result from knowledge. For more than 500 years before this encounter in John 4, the Samaritans had worshipped God their own way. Undoubtedly, many of them, perhaps even this woman, had worshipped with their hearts. They had sincere hearts of worship when they came to the foot of Mount Gerizim and offered sacrifice to God. But Jesus says here to this woman that their worship, in spite of its sincerity, was grossly deficient. Notice what Jesus says to her in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. The word you here in the Greek text is plural. In other words, he's saying this, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Now, we ought to begin by making sure we understand what Jesus did not mean. Jesus was not telling this woman, listen, you Samaritans have this strange view of God that teaches that he's unknowable. They didn't teach that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Nor was Jesus questioning their sincerity. He wasn't saying, listen, I know you go through the motions, but you don't really believe this stuff. You aren't really worshiping. Your real problem is your lack of sincerity. There is no hint to this woman or about the Samaritans that there was any lack of sincerity on their part. Instead, Jesus is saying that they are worshiping the true God. Absolutely, they were worshiping the true God. But at the same time, they were ignorant of him. They were ignorant of the truth about him. They simply did not know what he was like. Jesus adds in verse 22, we worship 
what we know. And by we, of course, Jesus means the Jewish people. You see, without question, the Jewish people have had a definite advantage on the rest of us. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 3. Turn there for a moment. In Romans chapter 3, verse 1, as Paul begins to indict the religious as guilty before God as well, he brings up the Jewish people, and he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? In other words, does the Jewish person have any advantage on us spiritually? He says, absolutely, verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, that is of first importance, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, with the revelation of God, with the word of God. They had a huge advantage because they had been entrusted with this revelation of God. That was their key advantage. They knew who God was because he had told them. He had revealed himself to them. As D.A. Carson writes, whatever else was wrong with Jewish worship, at least it could be said that the object of their worship was known. The Jews stand within the stream of God's saving revelation. They know the one they worship. So what was Jesus' point then to this woman? He wanted her to know that although worship is not truly worship without the heart, verses 20 and 21, True worship is not just having the right heart. That's not enough. You must have the right heart. You must have a heart that longs to worship God, but it doesn't end there. It's not true worship if that's all you have. Worship, to be true worship, must be informed with a right knowledge. To truly worship, Jesus told this woman, you have to have a right knowledge of God himself. Notice what Jesus said to her, verse 22. You worship that which you do not know. In other words, he was saying, you are ignorant about the object of your worship. You are ignorant about God himself. Now, this was a common rebuke of the Old Testament prophets of Israel. It was common for them to rebuke their ignorance of God, of his character, of his ways. Let me show you just one example. Turn to the prophet Hosea. It's the book right after Daniel in the Old Testament. Hosea brings up this very issue, or God brings it up through Hosea. Turn to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea writes, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. This is Hosea 4 verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. It's not uncommon in the Old Testament for God to use legal language. This is legal language. It's really remarkable. The God of the universe is saying to Israel, listen, I have a court case against you. I'm going to indict you for something. I'm going to bring you before the court. God, what would you accuse Israel of? What would you sue them for? Uh, for? He says, here's the reason. Verse 1, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. You don't know God. You don't know me. 
Notice verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest, that is Israel from being a priest to the nations, to represent God to the nations. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now what I want you to see here is the problem with their knowledge wasn't because they didn't have God's revelation. It wasn't because God hadn't made himself clear. Verse 6 says, they're destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. And specifically, they have forgotten the law of God. That doesn't mean they couldn't remember it. It means a conscious decision to turn away from God's revelation of himself. God has revealed himself clearly in his word. He has made himself known. And God said to Israel, I've got a court case against you. I'm going to sue you, and here's why. Because you have turned your back on my self-revelation. You don't know me. And you don't know me, not because I haven't made myself known, but because you haven't bothered to find me there. Look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Prophet Hosea makes the same point. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Prophet Hosea is saying much what we've seen in other passages, and that is, listen, I don't care about your external worship. I don't care about your sacrifices and all the things you do. What I want is for you to be loyal to me, and I want you to know me. This was the problem not only with the Jewish people of Hosea's time, but it was a problem for the Samaritans. Turn back to John chapter 4. You remember that the Samaritans accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament, only the Pentateuch as God's word. So they did not have God's complete revelation about himself. They did not have the full portrait that the Old Testament painted of God. A number of years ago, I read William Manchester's biography of Winston Churchill. And I was inspired by reading that biography, this, the portion of it called The Last Lion. I was inspired by that to take up oil painting. Because as I read that biography, I discovered that Churchill had done just that. In the period between the world wars, when everybody thought Churchill was washed up as a politician, he would never again have any sort of power, he retired to his estate, Chartwell, and he began to take up painting. He actually became quite good at it. He was in his 50s at the time, and I decided if he could do it in his state in life at his age, then it was time for me to try it as well. So I took some classes that taught the methods of the Renaissance masters. It's fascinating, really. The Renaissance master painters learned and taught painting as a series of skills. You start by learning line drawing, simply taking a pencil to paper and learning how with line, lines to represent objects and their relationships to each, others, to each other, to capture the right sizes, to capture the right proportions, the right relationships. Then once you have mastered line drawing, which is just as it sounds, lines on paper that capture those images, then you move on to tone. You take charcoal, and you take those line drawings now and you add to them charcoal on paper, a depth. That tone gives them 
dimension makes the object stand out from the paper. The next step, once you've mastered that skill, is to move on to beginning painting. Initially, you use only white paint and one other color. It's called tone painting, where you're simply now taking what you learned with line drawing and tone and transferring it to paint and canvas. Once you've mastered beginning painting, the next step then is to learn the principles of color. And you take a course in color and you learn an incredible variety and majesty of the system of color, all built, all tones, all colors built on three primary colors and the relationship that they have to each other. Once you have mastered the principles of color, then you move on to copying the works of the masters, to repainting the paintings of the masters in order to learn their techniques and styles. There's a sense in which we could say that the Samaritans, by only using the Pentateuch, only had pencil sketches of God. Oh, they were accurate, no question. I mean, God had revealed himself that way in the Pentateuch, but they were still the pencil sketches. The rest of the Old Testament would fill those sketches out with the rich hues of tone and color. And of course, Christ himself was the perfect revelation of God, and they didn't have any of that. They were ignorant of God. And therefore, Jesus told this woman, you're not ready to worship because you don't know me. You don't know God. Now look at the profound theology that Jesus teaches this woman in an informal conversation. Understand, by the way, that not all the truth about God that she needed to learn does Jesus teach her here. But instead, he teaches her the one truth that goes to the heart of the issue that was the main cause of her ignorance and therefore of her lack of true worship. Notice what he says to her in verse 24. God is spirit. Now remember, Jesus claimed to be God. In fact, in John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus exegeted or explained God. You want to know what God is like? Listen to Jesus. He'll explain it. He'll tell you. And here, Jesus makes an unequivocal statement about the being of God. He says God's essence is of the nature of spirit. By the way, let me just put a little plug for theology here. Some people think, you know, theology, it has no relationship to life, doesn't matter, it's just boring stuff, doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. Well, it mattered to Jesus. Jesus, in dealing with this woman who needed to know him and bow her knee to him, goes to theology and starts talking about the immaterial nature of God. Why? Because ideas have consequences. She had a bad idea about who God was, and therefore it affected her worship. Don't you for a moment believe those people who say, well, theology doesn't really matter. It mattered to Christ. Now, what did Jesus mean here by saying God is spirit? Well, fortunately, he defines it for us. After his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, he says this to his disciples. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, listen, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When Jesus says God is spirit, he means that God doesn't have flesh and bones. God can't be touched. In his essential being, God has none of the properties that belong to matter. In the universe, there are only two 
kinds of existence. There is matter that exists, and there is the immaterial that exists. So the material and the immaterial. And he's saying, listen, God doesn't belong to the material category. He belongs to the immaterial category. Now, God can choose to make his presence known through physical phenomena so we can see him, but he is still, by nature, a spirit, and those physical manifestations are not permanent manifestations of his being. So Jesus told this woman that to truly worship God, you have to know that God is spirit. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. We do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.